the conversation that you've just heard between Jesus and Peter follows a colossal failure. Failure, the very word has a real bitter taste, doesn't it? In the final message of our series, Conversations with Jesus, we're going to consider this amazing person in so many respects, a person by the name of Simon Peter. The focus, though, that we'll be looking at today, where we'll end up, has to do on the subject of failure. But let's begin by building a profile on this guy. Uh, On the positive side, there are so many positive things uh, that we can know. By trade, he's a fisherman. He's hardworking. He's tough-headed. By temperament, he's clearly a leader. There are four lists in the Gospels of all 12 apostles, and in every list, Peter is first. Uh, By personality, he's eager. He's passionate. He's bold. He's outspoken, he's decisive, even if wrong. There's so much to like about Peter. He's a risk taker. Do you remember the incident out on the lake of, uh, out on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus comes walking on the water and, and, and Peter speaks up and says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. Peter had an innate gift for leadership. He's always in the lead. He's often acting as the spokesperson for all the other disciples. Remember when Jesus asked the disciples who people were saying that he was? And people said, well, some say that you're uh, John the baptizer. Others say that you're Elijah, that you're Jeremiah, that you're one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked the 12, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, taking his stand in the forefront, declares, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's Peter. Peter plays a prominent role in the beginning of the Christian church. He stands with all the other apostles on the day of Pentecost, gives a masterful sermon in which 3,000 hearers believe in Jesus because of his message. He plays a prominent role in the early years of the church. God uses him to confirm the message of the gospel to the Samaritans and to Gentiles. Again, a remarkable man. Peter had many compelling strengths, but he also had glaring weaknesses. It's true that oftentimes our weaknesses are the flip side of our strengths. We see that with Peter. For example, in his eagerness and verbosity, he often stuck his foot in his mouth. We often see that with him. He engages the mouth without engaging the mind. He seems to do a lot of things without a whole lot of thought. He's quick-tempered, often acting with brashness. Remember when the Roman soldiers came to the Garden of Gethsemane? Scores of battle-hardened Roman soldiers ready to, to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? He whips out his sword and chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest who'd come along. What's he going to do? Take them all on one at a time? But that's Peter. Do you want to see a great example of of the flip side of Peter's strengths that became weakness? 
Back in Matthew 16, right after Peter makes this grand statement about Jesus and his identity, uh, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to have to suffer many things. In fact, he's going to be killed, but he would be raised from the dead. Now look at Matthew's account, chapter 16. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't know, is that not a good idea? Um, And saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Bold, caring, protective, assertive, I suppose all those things. But we need to read on. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whoa. One moment he's blessed, the next he's accursed. You know, Peter seems to be caught between these two frequently. I mean, he took a courageous stand before the church leaders in Jerusalem, defending the truth that that the Gentiles had received the gospel, the same gospel as the Jews. They'd received the same Holy Spirit as the Jews. They, They ought to be full partners in this new thing called the church that the Holy Spirit began at Pentecost And then we see from Paul's letter to the Galatians that how Peter comes to the city of Antioch to see how the church is doing. And while he's there, he's eating with Jew and Gentile alike. But then some of those came up from Jerusalem and Peter withdrew from being with them. And the apostle Paul had to call him out on the carpet for his hypocrisy. I suppose there's no greater failure on Peter's part in our minds than related to the time of Jesus' arrest and his later death. So think, first of all, about the setup. There are two things that happen in the upper room that precede all this. The first thing we know from the gospel accounts is that at some point in the evening, an argument broke out among the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Do you, like me, have a hard time believing that Peter's not in the mix of this thing? Um, look at Jesus' rebuke to the twelve, and then what he has to say to Peter in particular. From Luke 22, we read, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines a table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table? But I am among you as one who serves. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is predicting Peter's failure. But he also predicts his recovery and restoration, though I don't think either of these things right now are registering to Peter at all. The second thing is in Matthew's gospel, we read of Jesus' prediction of coming events and Peter's response to that. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples this, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Oh, here comes Peter. Peter says, though they all fall away, all those guys, they're, gonna, they're not going to be there. 
But listen, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same. I'm reminded here of Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. Or perhaps the, the old saying about bullies and those full of themselves, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's Peter. That's what's going to happen. And his fall was great. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel? We're going to get to John and, uh, and his Gospel in a moment. But Matthew chapter 26. If you grab a Bible in front of you there, page 1058. Matthew 26. Uh, Look at verse 57 and 58. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now drop down to verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter failed, and he failed spectacularly, stupendously. Luke adds a small but significant detail in his gospel account. I want to pick up at the account of the third time when Peter is identified as having been with Jesus from Luke 22. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Catch this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter failed miserably and his failure cut him to the core of his soul. How, how could he ever recover from this failure? How could he ever be forgiven? You know, we would be left with a very sour and distasteful memory of Peter if this is how it ended. Now go to John's Gospel. Chapter 1, go three books later to the fourth gospel, John chapter 21, last chapter of this gospel account. I want to just have us see how the story develops. Uh, The reading comes at the end that we had a reader's theater, but I want to start reading at verse 21. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, And he revealed himself in this way. 
Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, we, we know that's John, uh, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. But none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, truly, or said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I love this passage. Peter's denial was a public act. And now Peter's restoration is a public act. Peter's denial was threefold and his restoration is threefold. I, I, I love the symmetry. And Jesus restores Peter. He restores Peter for his own sake. Peter was a defeated man. He's humiliated. He's devastated. He's shamed. I mean, can you imagine how he must have cringed when he was in the presence of the very one that he swore he'd never deny, but denied him three times? You know, he needed restoration for his own sake. Peter, I think, was also restored for Jesus' sake. God wasn't through with him yet. God still has something for Peter to do. And he's restored so that he might be a more effective witness for his master. So Peter denied his Lord three times. He affirms his love for the Lord three times. 
And three times he's commissioned to shepherd the flock of God. So we've got to ask the question, was Peter really restored? Um, did he really grasp his failure? And did he really accept his restoration? I want you to look at something that Peter writes later. He, this is, has to do with service in God's flock. And in his first epistle, he has this to say to the elders of the church. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, being examples to the flock. Peter experienced the wonderful grace of God. Even in his greatest failure, it's an amazing thing. So I want to jump out of the text and come to today and talk a little bit about this thing of failure, and then we're going to come back and see something else about Peter's conversation. Um, I, I think I'm looking at this by way of a number of principles that we might think about. The first is that failure is common to all. We've all failed at one time or another, haven't we? As a parent, as a child, a student, a team member, a friend. We've failed publicly. We've failed privately. We've failed morally. Now, lest anybody want to argue the point, let me ask you to evaluate your life in this way. Doctors say you should drink eight glasses of water a day. How you doing? Dentists say you should brush after every meal and floss every day. Okay? Car specialists say you should never allow your gas tank to get below half full. Uh, accountants say you should never have less than $100 in your checking account. You're supposed to make your bed every morning. Christians should read their Bible every day. Say what? <laughs> Doctors say the average adult should get no less than eight hours of sleep a night. You're supposed to always obey the speed limit. I don't think we even want to go there. You're supposed to have at least three months of salary always in reserve. If you fail, your comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. Some are very ordinary, and some are very extraordinary. But just remember, we've all failed. Secondly, failure doesn't make you a failure. You know, a common denominator for people who learn how to deal with failure and hardships in life is that they don't give up. And they refuse to focus on the failures and the weaknesses, and they focus instead on the strengths. Michael Jordan once did a basketball commercial where he walks into the arena and the crowd is chanting, Michael, Michael, Michael. And then he says this, I've missed 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I've missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And then he says in the commercial, that's why I succeed. Because he didn't focus on his failures. Um, he focused on his strengths. And history is filled with people who failed but weren't failures. George Washington lost two-thirds of all the battles he fought during the American Revolution. But eventually the war was won, and he became the first president of the United States. 
Napoleon graduated 42nd in a class of 43 students. <laughs> then he went out and conquered Europe. Billy Graham said that when he was asked to preach his first sermon, he had four sermons prepared, and he was so nervous that he preached all four in less than 10 minutes. <laughs> what if he had concluded, you know, I'm just not cut out for this. I don't want to endure the criticism that comes because of that. A teacher once told Thomas Edison that he was too stupid to learn. Albert Einstein's teacher said that little Albert was, quote, mentally slow, unsociable, and adrift forever in his foolish dreams. Henry Ford forgot to put a reverse gear in his first car. The rhetoric teacher at Harrell School in England wrote this on 16-year-old Winston Churchill's report card, a conspicuous lack of success. Okay, you made your point. What is the point? My point is that some of you feel like failures because you've failed. But you're only a failure if you stay down. You're only a, a failure if you allow others and what they say about that to debilitate your willingness to pick yourself up and to move on. If you don't play the victim card and wallow in self-pity. I think the Apostle Paul understood that in his life. Do you remember what he writes? He says, you know, when I, when I think about the past and I think about those things, he says, I reach forward and I press on. The Pastor Paul had a lot of failures in his life, particularly when he looked at his relationship with the God that he was now serving. You know, this one who called himself the chief of sinners, a vicious persecutor of the church, would say that by the grace of God, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think growth becomes stunted in our lives when we stay stuck in the past, in our failures, when we don't move on. I, I love the Charlie Brown comics, I have to tell you. That's my confession. Lucy explains to her manager, Charlie Brown, at the end of the game why she lost sight of the baseball that was hit to her. She says this, Sorry I missed that easy fly ball, manager. I thought I had it, but I suddenly remembered all the others I've missed and the past got in my eyes. That's the way some people live. Here's another principle. Failure is often a window of opportunity. It's an opportunity, for example, for growth. I suspect that we personally grow more out of our failures than we do our successes. That that's when, as we are driven to God, we often see that growth come. Listen, I don't mean that it's not painful. It often is. But we become better people when we learn from our mistakes. We become better Christians when we repent and confess our sins and experience God's forgiveness and we move on. This growth often includes an adjustment of perspective. When we fail to get all we want, it's just possible that we might learn the true value of life. I think that's what led that kind of experience to this unknown author of this piece who writes, I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to obey. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power and the praise of men. I was given weakness to sense my need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. 
I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. In spite of myself, my prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. What a different perspective. I think it's also an opportunity for learning and developing skills. How did you learn to ride a bike? You got on it, you fell off it. You got back on it. And I, I think failure often becomes a stepping stone to success. And I suspect that we appreciate our success even more when it comes after failure. Sometimes I think failure helps in redirection. Charles Coulson tells of his prison experience in his book, Loving God. And while in prison, he remembered what his life had been like before prison. Uh, the honors that he'd earned, the court cases that he'd won, the, the, the prestige and the power that came from working in the White House. Uh, but the failure of Watergate changed all that. But in hindsight, in God's sight, his biggest failure was his greatest victory. And God used that experience to redirect Colson's life. Prison was the beginning of God's greatest work in and through him. And out of his failure came forgiveness and a redirection of life that God has used in the lives of hundreds of thousands of prisoners and their families through the ministry of prison fellowship. All because God used failure to redirect him. I think the other thing it does for us is it maybe gives us a greater capacity for understanding. Those who have faced failure and weakness often have more empathy for those going through similar things. Maybe that's why Paul writes to the Corinthians and talks about this God of all comfort who's comforted us in all things that we might comfort others also. There's an empathy that comes out of being human and experiencing what humans do. Here's another principle. Failure does not disqualify you for God's service. If that were true, what would have happened to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Paul, to Peter? I mean, Peter had to wonder if, if he would ever been able, be able to get back into the game again. Would he ever be able to serve his master again? Those thoughts surely must have been going through his mind. But that's the wonderful thing about the grace of God. Some of you might be thinking, I have failed God so badly, so often I see no way that he could ever use me. Listen, God's grace has given all of us a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and a fiftieth chance, and a hundredth chance. See, the question is, will you believe his intentions for your life? Will you believe that he has a plan for your life that even allows for using you in spite of failures. That leads me to my last principle, and if you've been around at all, you know this is one of my refrains. Bear with me. God can and you will use everything in your life for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. He really does have a plan for your life. Paul talks about that in Romans 8, familiar verses. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Would you notice that it doesn't say that all things are good? Don't miss that. That's silly thinking. 
God causes all things to work together for good. Here's the conditions to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Do you mean that God can even use my failures? Uh-huh. Do you mean that he can even take my sin, my moral failures, and, and yet still use that for my ultimate good and for his glory? Yeah. Did you see any exceptions that Paul lists there? I don't. Um, Satan thought that he had done the great thing, isn't it? When you, when you think about this, is there any greater demonstration of apparent human failure being a divine success than the cross? Satan surely thought that he had won when he got the Romans to put Jesus onto a cross. Surely he, won, he thought that he had derailed God's plan. The disciples may, must have pondered the failure for God to usher in his kingdom uh, as they understood it to be. Here's the thing. Good Friday wasn't the final act. Easter was coming. So let me ask you, have you failed God? Do you ever question that maybe God can't or won't want to use me because of my failure? You know, there's a great truth in scripture from John's epistle, first epistle. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants to use you, but he uses clean vessels. He, he, he chooses to use repentant failures. Scriptures are filled with them. And certainly our churches as well. And I stand here at the front to say that to me. But God uses us anyway. I want to go back to John's gospel for just a minute, to John 21. Uh, I, I don't want to make too much of this, but there's some interesting changes of words in the Greek text of your New Testament that, that just tells me something. Um, a couple of the words that are used in the Greek language for love, agape, or agapao, which is God's love. It's a selfless love. It's the way that God loves us. Another one is phileo, which is uh, love as a friend, love as a brother. You get Philadelphia, phileo, you know, city of brotherly love. Um, but here's, I'm going to just insert those words in. Follow the, follow the, the, the conversation that's there. Okay, God's love, agapao, phileo, uh, brotherly love, friend love. So here's, here's what happens. Jesus says to Simon, son of John, do you agapao me more than these? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Jesus says to him a second time, Peter, do you agapao me? Peter says, Lord, yes, I phileo you. A third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know, I feel that, oh, you. I think, there's, I think there's something about where Jesus wants to lay out the supreme, the ideal. But then he recognizes where Peter is, and he goes to where Peter is, and he says, now follow me. Peter, I'll, I'll take you where you are. I, I know you failed miserably. I know how you feel about it. You know, the, the, you just can't say that you can respond to me in, in, in that way, in, in an agape way. But I'll take what you got. 
because you love me as a brother. So, Peter, let's walk on. See, I think that's what God does when we fail him. He says, listen, yeah, repent of your sin, turn from that, come back, experience the forgiveness that I've offered to you and have already provided for you in the cross, and, and follow me. Let's, let's walk together. That, I think that's his invitation to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, um, you know every one of us here intimately, and you, you know our... Our successes and you know our failures. You know our strengths, you know our weaknesses. And Lord, if we're honest, we will all have to admit that before you we stand guilty of failure, moral failure, sin in our life, whether it's in thought, word, deed, whatever. But Lord, you are so gracious to us. Your sacrifice on the cross covers all of our sins. May we be quick to come and to agree with you about our sin, that we might experience your forgiveness. And then, Lord, would you just uh, come to where we are and, and invite us to walk with you. And I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that we would respond as Peter did and followed you. Lord, may we, out of our failures, trust you even more. And might we even have a greater view of a gracious, compassionate, merciful God who just loves us so much. And so, Lord, we commit our lives to you for another week. In Christ's name I pray.